you have your Bibles, would you grab them and would you turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 16 in just a moment. But as we begin, um, a few years ago, I watched a eight-hour documentary over the course of an entire weekend on O.J. Simpson. Just want to let you guys know that. Um, and maybe some of you guys are like, Brian, that's a huge waste of time to watch an eight-hour documentary. And I would respond to you that I'm using it as a sermon illustration. So technically, I should have gotten paid for it, you know? But before I watched the documentary, and uh, I know that, that many of you guys um, are, are more familiar with the story than I was, but before I watched the documentary, pretty much all I knew was that he was in a white Ford Bronco uh, driving down the freeway. That was like the extent of what I knew. And what I discovered was that there was this entire backstory of being one of the best running backs of all time, of being a cultural icon, starring in commercials, his marriage to Nicole Brown Simpson, the murder of Nicole Brown Simpson, the trial that lasted an entire year, the glove that didn't fit. And so there's all of these things that sort of helped me to gain an understanding of that famous shot of the white Ford Bronco driving down the freeway. And I say that to say that, that tonight, as we study Romans 1, there is a very famous or infamous passage in Romans 1. And it talks about sex, it talks about sexuality, and specifically, it is used as a battleground topic when it comes to Christians and the LGBTQ community. And it's this uh, passage that has a lot of controversy around it. And we are going to spend a good bit of time tonight talking about it. But what I need us to understand is that uh, just like the white Ford Bronco had a bigger story around it, um, this passage, like Paul didn't sit down and say, I'm going to write an entire chapter about the LGBTQ community. No, he was writing a thought. He was writing a, a message, and this verse that we're going to read is embedded in it. And so we're going to study the entire passage. We're going to understand what is the entire context. And then we're going to look specifically at sex and sexuality. And the title tonight, if you're taking notes, is Does God Care About My Sexuality? Does God Care About My Sexuality? And so we're going to look at that within the context of this passage. But let's start in verse 16. Pastor Dave opened up our book study in the book of Romans last week. And he actually read 16 and 17. But I'm going to read starting in verse 16, and these three verses are on the screen, so you can look at them on the screen, or you can look in your Bibles, Romans chapter 1, verse 16, and here it goes. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Think back to your English class for a moment in high school. If you're in your English class, your teacher probably taught you about a thesis statement. You guys remember thesis statement. You're supposed to write something at the beginning that says, tell me what you're going to tell me. Tell me the big idea. And Romans 1, 16 and 17 is the thesis statement for Romans. Paul is saying 
There's something called the gospel. It's awesome. It has the power to save literally everyone. And I'm not ashamed of it. It has the power to save the Jew. It has the power to save the Gentile. And the, the, the way the gospel happens is by faith. And the gospel reveals God's righteousness. And so Romans 1, 16 and 17, the whole rest of the book, he, he's going to unpack this argument. So he says, the gospel is the righteousness of God revealed from heaven. But what we're going to see is that there is something else that's revealed from heaven, and it's in verse 18. And he says this, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And so this is kind of this record scratch moment. Like it's exciting. The gospel, it's awesome. It has the power to save everybody. And then he's like, also... The wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. Like that escalated quickly. He, he moves quickly from this great news to there's very bad news. And the bad news is that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. Now, the wrath of God is something that is not super popular to talk about. Uh, we, we as the church, uh, if you've grown up in church, if, if you've been around the church, Perhaps you're familiar with the wrath of God, but most people aren't like, ooh, cool, a message on the wrath of God. And, and even when you're talking to your neighbor, sometimes you're like, man, I want to talk to him about God. I want to talk to him about the love of God. But we don't usually lead with, hey, just to let you know, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. But that is how Paul starts. And so we need to understand what is the wrath of God. And I'll try to explain with an illustration. Um, I, I love uh, my two sons, and I do my best to be a good parent to them, but I definitely fail sometimes as a parent. And a, a few months ago, uh, my, my wife Katie and I, we were, this was before our, our second son Malachi was born, and we were driving uh, from our home uh, up to North Carolina for the holidays. So we had me, Katie, and Isaiah, our son, who was less than two at the time. And it's an eight, nine hour drive, and it is uh, just tough for me emotionally, so very much it's tough for our two-year-old. And at some point during the drive, inevitably, he gets over it and he breaks down and he starts crying. And he pretty much cries for probably two to three hours, the last two to three hours of every trip. Now, I really believe that there will be like screaming babies in hell, okay? Like, I don't know everything about <laughs> hell, but I do believe that that's part of it. Like, it is something that is just the pits for me. And, and so, like, I'm, I'm already, like, dreading Thanksgiving. I'm like, that drive's going to be tough. And, and so, there is a moment, I'm driving, I'm driving, and, and at some point, I just broke. And keep in mind, my son's one and a half, and I was like, Zay, I got it. And he didn't stop at all. He, he did not stop crying. But I, like, yelled at him. And, and I want us to understand, like, the wrath of God is not God just flipping out. It's not him, like, losing his cool and just being like, you know what, I'm over this, okay? Because what we need to understand is that God is consistent. I have three verses on the screen that I want us to look at. In Isaiah 6, 3, it says, God is holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. James 1:17, we learn that God does not change like shifting shadows. Deuteronomy 6, 4, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So what I need us to understand is that one of God's 
attributes is his holiness. That means that he is complete, that he does not change, that he is one. And so what we need to understand is that that when we hear verses about God's love, when we hear verses about God's goodness, when we hear verses about God's judgment, it's not like God woke up on the bad side of the bed one day. Like, you know what? Today I'm grumpy, so I'm going to be a judge. Usually I'm in a good mood and I'm loving. No, that's not what it is. And so look at these three verses. These three verses describe three of God's attributes. I think they're on the next slide here. They describe three of God's attributes. Nahum chapter 1, verse 7, the Lord is good. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, God is love. And Isaiah 33, 22, the Lord is our judge. Now in our minds, those seem opposites. God is our judge and he's loving? How can that be? But we must understand that God is one. He doesn't change. And so both his judgment, his wrath, his love, his goodness, they're all wrapped up in one. He is consistent. Here's an illustration to help us understand that. Think about our son. True or false, our son is very, very important. True, yes. For the three of us that remember earth science, our son is important. Without our son, we would probably last for like eight minutes on the planet. It provides life. It provides warmth. It provides us with the oxygen that we need. Like, we very much need our sun. If, if we wake up one day and the sun doesn't come up, like, it's about to be like the zombies in here. Like, it's not going to be good. True or false, our sun is also dangerous if we don't treat it with respect. Yes. If you stay out too long, you're going to get sunburned. If you stare at the sun too long, you're going to go blind. If you get into a rocket ship and continue to fly towards the sun, there is going to be a problem. And so the sun is not changed, but, but we can relate to the sun with wisdom or we can relate to the sun in a way that hurts us. And it's the same with God. The, the wrath of God, what we need to learn is that the wrath of God is a reality. And so I can relate to God in a way that brings blessing to my life Or I can relate to God in a way where I am going to receive wrath. It all depends on how I relate to him. And so here's the question. What provokes, actually, let me me take a moment and define God's wrath. I, I put this on the screen. The wrath of God is God's unchanging attitude and action towards sin. The wrath of God is God's unchanging attitude and action towards sin. So God is not changing, and his attitude and his perspective towards sin is that the wrath of God is coming against sin. Now, I believe that this is sometimes an active and sometimes a passive reality. So let me explain what I mean. There are times in the Bible where God actually says, because you are disobeying me, because you're rebelling against me, I am taking an active role in judgment. And so the flood would be an example of this. Humankind rebelled against God, and God says, I'm taking an active role. I am judging. But there are times when God's wrath is passive. In other words, he allows us to act in a foolish way, and because we act foolishly, we experience the consequence of our sin. If you decide to spend a ton of money that you don't have 
to buy a car that you can't afford, to buy a home that you can't afford, to spend a lot of money on, on uh, furniture that, that's way outside of your price range, and you wake up one day and you realize, man, I am in a ton of debt, and, and I can't pay my payments, in a sense, you're experiencing wrath. You're experiencing the consequence of your action. God didn't actively punish you, but, but he allowed you to, because of your free will, to step into something that's giving you consequences. So the wrath of God is God's active action against sin. And sometimes that's passive, sometimes that's active. So the question is, what provokes God's wrath? And this is where we're going to continue in Romans. Look with me at verse 18. So once again, we're going to read this one again. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Verse 19. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, And their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. So keep in mind, Paul is writing to this church in Rome. And this church in Rome is made up of Jewish believers and Gentile believers. And Paul is describing that there is a group of people that have rejected God. They have embraced their own truth, and because of that, they have become foolish and darkened in their thinking, and they've moved toward idol worship. Now, as that's being read, the, the church in Rome, they would have been thinking about their neighbors. They would have been thinking about their coworkers. They would have been thinking about the, the people that they interacted with on a daily basis because Rome what was a highly uh, pagan, h- highly idolatrous, highly promiscuous city. And, and so there was a lot of godlessness that was happening at that time. And, and so as they're hearing Paul read this, they're thinking to themselves, I know the people that you're talking about. These are people that are far from God. And, and so Paul is describing this is what happens when a culture rejects God. He is literally giving us a play-by-play of what happens when a culture rejects God. And by the way, if you don't believe the Bible is true, eerily similar to what we're seeing today as our culture more and more rejects God. And really in this passage, there's three things that we see. And so I'm just going to give you a short recap of what we see from Romans 1.18 to Romans 1.23. The Romans 1.18 to 23 recap. First off, that God's existence, authority, and morality are plainly seen. So, so Paul actually writes this, and he says in verse 19, what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. So when you look at creation... Creation screams out, there is a creator. 
You, you must conclude, looking at the complexity, looking at the, the beauty of creation, that this did not happen by accident. And even when you look at human morality, every human culture across the entire world and across the entire history has come up with a similar morality. Now, there are different uh, values from different cultures, but there's never a culture that says it's a good thing to kill someone that you love. There's, there's never a culture that says it's a good thing to betray your friend. It's a good thing to be a coward. All of these values across all cultures, across all time, say that there is a creator that has created all of us and wired inside of us these, these basic things. And what Paul is saying is, because of this, God can be known, and it is evident to every person if they, ha- if they open their eyes that God is real. Therefore, no one has an excuse to say, I didn't know there was a God. And so he says that God's existence, authority, and morality are plainly seen. It is obvious. The next point of the argument is this. He says that sin is suppressing God's truth for my truth. Notice in verse 18 that he says that the godlessness and wickedness of people, it's manifested because they suppress the truth. So sin is saying, I do understand that there is something inside of me that that does agree with the truth of God. I have been given a conscience that allows me to align with God's morality, but sin is saying, I'm going to choose to suppress that, and I'm going to choose to embrace what I want to be true about the world. So, So I don't agree with how God lays things out. I like how I lay things out better. Sin is suppressing God's truth. And then the third thing is this, that sin is exchanging God's authority for my authority. So if you're wondering, what is sin? At the root of every sin is saying, I disagree with God's truth. I like my own truth. And I disagree with God's authority in my life. I prefer my own authority. I prefer to be my own God. And what we see even in our culture is that our culture has wholeheartedly embrace this, right? Not only are there individual people, because there's always been individual people that, that have disagreed with God. There's always been huge groups of people that have disagreed with God. But what we are seeing now more and more is that almost every aspect of our culture from media, from politics, from education, from people's parenting styles, like all of it is saying, we disagree that there's a God We disagree that he has a say on our lives. We disagree that he is the authority. We are the authority. And we would like to embrace what we don't want to embrace. And there's actually a great author, Carl Truman. And he puts it like this. It's a bit of a wordy quote, but I think it's really good. He says, the modern self assumes the authority of inner feelings. In other words, the most important thing is what I feel inside of me and sees authenticity as defined by the ability to give social expression to the same. The modern self also assumes that society at large will recognize and affirm this behavior. So, so in other words, what he's saying is, we as people, like, like, our society, like we, we believe, like our current culture believes, that the most important thing is what I feel, and that our responsibility as society is to affirm what I feel. So it's not just your job to, to feel what you feel. It's your job to celebrate what I feel. And then he says, authenticity is achieved by acting 
outwardly in accordance with one's inward feeling. That's what he says, this is our worldview. That, that the way I find happiness, the way I find my true self is I discover what I want in the inside and I try to outwardly express it. I am my own authority, I make my own truth. That's what our society is doing and that's what Paul is saying. If you do that, that's what, how God's wrath is unveiled. That, that we become our own God and we oppose God, we rebel against God And when we're doing that, we're actually inviting God's judgment. We're inviting God's wrath. And the Bible does affirm that we're valuable people. But the Bible also says that we should not give, we should not make what we feel the most important thing. We should make what God says the most important thing. And we should look to work our inner feelings to direct towards what God says. And and they even say, when you reject, Paul even says this, he says, when you reject God, you reject reason. Because he says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. And so when we reject God, we actually think we're smart about it. We're like, I figured out a better way than God. But but then Paul says, you think you're wise, you're actually a fool. So this is what activates the wrath of God. How do you step into the wrath of God? Say, God, It's not your truth, it's my truth. It's not your authority, it's my authority. And when you do that, you actually enter into God's judgment. Now, we're going to move on to the second, or the third thing, the third chunk of scripture, and it's verse 24. And I want you to notice, because this is where we're going to get into sexuality, I want you to notice that there is a direct connection between rejecting God and embracing a sexuality that is apart from God. There's a direct connection between these two. And here it is, verse 24 of Romans chapter 1. And Paul writes this. He says, Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged truth about God for a lie. And worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is to be forever praised. Amen. Verse 26. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. And these are the controversial verses. It says, Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Verse 28, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. Now there's a couple things that I want us to notice from this text. First off, notice that God gave them over. It says God gave them over to sinful desires. God gave them over to shameful lust. God gave them over to a depraved mind. Remember I said that sometimes God's judgment is passive. That that God is simply here saying, I am allowing you to continue in your foolishness. I am allowing you to continue down a path of rejecting me, down a path of rejecting truth. And when that happens, your your mind, your desires, your heart, your body is actually going to be 
warped away from my plan and warped toward the things that are actually going to end up destroying him. And I say this often, that sometimes the worst thing that God can do is say, have it your way. Sometimes that's what we want. God, I just want to do my own thing. That's the worst thing that God can do. But because when we embrace our own thing, again, we're entering into the wrath of God when that happens. Also notice that there is a direct connection between a culture's denial of God's authority and a culture's warped view of sexuality. There's a, a, a famous saying, canary in a coal mine. Canary in a coal mine came from uh, mining. And, and what they discovered was that uh, as, as, they, as, as miners uh, back before we had technology uh, were, were dying of carbon monoxide poisoning. The reason is because carbon monoxide poisoning, you can't smell it, you can't sense it. And they didn't know as they were digging deeper and deeper and deeper that, 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 that you're losing oxygen. And so people were dying. And so they had to figure out how do we alert these miners and keep them safe. And so what they would do is they would bring canaries into the coal mine. And the canary has a higher sensitivity to carbon monoxide than humans do. And so, and sorry for all you bird lovers out there, but the idea is that if the canary dropped dead, you got out of the mine. And so it was better for, for the canary to alert you by losing consciousness than for us to be losing miners. And so the phrase canary in a coal mine came up. And, and what, what Paul is saying is that when you see outwardly that a culture has rejected God's path and plan for sexuality and embraced a path and plan for sexuality that is apart from that, it's actually a canary in a coal mine. It's evidence. It's telling you a culture has rejected God. And so what we need to do here is we need to take a little bit of time and look at God's plan for sexuality. And we need to look at God's uh, message, the scripture's message, to uh, not only, uh, to, to specifically the LGBTQ community. Because that is one of the things that's addressed here. Now here's the question. A lot of people will say that verse 26 and 27, it doesn't really talk about homosexuality the way that we know it. So people will say that's kind of more describing like rape or it's describing pedophilia. It's not really describing what we would know as like a loving, consensual, long-term committed relationship. And I don't have time to go into the Greek, but that's not true. The reality is that it is describing an act, a sexually immoral act, where a man sleeps with a man or a woman sleeps with a woman. That's what it's describing. Now, it is important as we have this conversation to know this, that these scriptures speak out against actions, okay? They don't speak out against temptation, and so being tempted is not a sin. What you do with that temptation can become a sin. You can entertain it in your mind. You can pursue and fill your mind with lustful thoughts. You can take action on that temptation. But this is for everyone. And so for those of us in this room who do not struggle with LGBTQ attraction, who we struggle with lust, and so the temptation is not a sin. What we do with that is sin. And it's the same thing for the LGBTQ community as well. But with the rest of my time, I do want to share four things that the scripture teaches about the LGBTQ community. 
And I've titled this Jesus and the LGBTQ community. And so we're going to look at four different things. The first thing is this, and this is very important as a foundation, that our message is not good people versus bad people. Our message is everyone needs Jesus. Amen? Okay. Now, with this topic, we fall into two extremes. We fall into the extreme of no grace, and we fall into the extreme of no truth. And so if you're in the extreme of no grace, we need to start with this truth. Because there are those that as you're listening, you're ready for me to just really hit the LGBTQ community hard, right? Be like, Brian, give him Leviticus 18. Give him 1 Corinthians 6. Give him 1 Timothy 1. And you're just ready for it. But, but here's what we need to be careful of. Because yes, Paul does speak about these homosexual acts in verse 26 and 27. But look with me at verse 29. Romans chapter 1, verse 29. And we're actually going to read all the way to chapter 2, verse 1. In verse 29, it says this. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. And although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve those who practice them. Chapter 2, verse 1, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do such things. This is very important because historically the church has looked at the LGBTQ community and said, this is the really bad sin. This is the one God hates. This is the one we're picketing. This is the one that's the low-hanging fruit. You could always throw it in a sermon and get an applause for it. But what we need to realize is that there are some sins that Paul listed in this list that all of us would say, oh, well, that's not really a bad sin. Right? Greed? Oh, I mean, I mean, everybody's greedy. Like, whenever, when I look at something, I want it. When I see my neighbor have something, I'm jealous of it. It's not bad, though. That's just normal life. Envy? Jealousy? No, Brian, you got to understand, that one's like, I, you can't avoid that one. Gossip? I mean, people need to know what to pray for. <laughs> How are they going to know if I don't tell them a little bit of juicy information? See what I'm saying? The message is not, man, there's this group of bad people over here. The message is we all need Jesus. And let's even talk about sexuality. It's not just the LGBTQ community, okay? There are plenty of people in here that if we were to put up your current actions, you would be very embarrassed as well. If we would put up what's running through your mind, you would say, hey, I don't, I don't want that to happen. And in fact, I love what the Center for Faith, Gender, and Sexuality says. 
This is in their belief statement. It says this. It says the fall has corrupted God's original intent for human sexuality in all persons. Therefore, all people, straight or non-straight, experience corruption in their sexuality. So what this means is we all sin in this category. We all need God's grace in this category. And so the question sometimes is, well, Brian, is, is, can people be born gay? I don't see a problem with that. The Christian belief is that all of us are born in depravity. We're all born in sin. I was born with desires that are ungodly. I was born with tendencies towards certain things that are ungodly. That's not an excuse for me to do them, but, but it, it is a reality of living in a fallen and broken world. And, and I do think about myself. I've, I've shared my testimony that, that from the time I was 13 until the time I was 23, highly addicted to pornography. Didn't really have a huge desire to stop it. It was the thing that I ran to. I, I had a, a desire for, for lust. I had an appetite for it. And I pursued it for a really long time. I got addicted to it. It took me four to five years of really seriously fighting and battling to get free. And, and praise God, um, I have been free from that. For, for seven, eight years now, and I'm so thankful for that. But, but listen, I, that doesn't mean that I, I walk around in just complete holiness. You know, there are times when I, I'll watch something on TV and, and, and something sexual turns on, and of course, I try to turn away from it. But there's always the temptation that enters in my mind that says, that would be kind of nice. There's times when I'm on my phone, and, and the temptation is, it would be nice to access that. It would be nice to go back to the other way. And so I'm not just standing up here saying, like, I've got it all figured out. And I'm saying we all are in need of Christ. We all are in need of Jesus. This is what Romans 3 says. I'm spoiling the next couple weeks for you, but you'll get to it in a minute. But it says, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks God. So we need to understand the foundational principle of our faith is not there's some good people and there's some bad people. The foundational principle is every single person needs the salvation of Jesus. That's the first baseline that we have to understand. Okay, remember I said this, that the two extremes are no grace and no truth. We've just talked about no grace. Now we do need to look at people who say no truth. And, or who fall in the extreme of no truth. And this is the second point on Jesus and the LGBTQ community, and it's this, that Scripture does have a clear, consistent message about gender, sexuality, and marriage. And, and there are people who say, God doesn't care about your sexuality. There are even churches, and they call themselves affirming churches, that say, you know what? We affirm and we accept everyone, no matter where you're at on the spectrum. And I want to say, you're not a, faithfully, a faithful church to the word of God if you're an affirming church. Because scripture does have a clear, consistent message about gender, sexuality, and marriage. Now, there may be some people who are in this room who are watching online, and you would say, like, I'm part of the LGBTQ community. And you would say that you feel attacked right now. And what I want to say is that just like everyone else, God does love you, that God has an incredible plan for your life, that Jesus died for you and invited you into life with God. 
but we need to understand this is what Scripture teaches. And so I'm going to share four passages quickly with you on this. First, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Genesis 1 establishes the idea that God created the whole world, that he is the author, that he gets to call the shots. And in Genesis 1.27, we see this, that God created mankind, male and female, humans, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And so this, this is important for a couple reasons. First off, God created humans. And so humans are incredibly valuable. Every human's incredibly valuable. Everyone. But, but we're not just valuable apart from the fact that God created us. Because there are secular humanists, there are evolutionists, and they would say human beings are valuable. But, but really, there's no basis for that. Like, if we evolved from nothing, we actually are not valuable. But, but if a loving God created us and breathed life into us and put his fingerprint on us, he's the one who gives us value. We are valuable, and we're valuable because God created us. Important also to note in this, God created them male and female. God made gender. God made two genders. Not one gender. Not seven genders. Not fluid genders. God specifically said, here are the boundaries, male and female. And so God made you fearfully and wonderfully in the gender that you are. Now, what we see in our students, what we see a lot right now is that there are people who are confused about their gender. And again, let's go back to it. All of us experience confusion because of sin. All of us have thoughts and desires that are out of line with God's plan. And a scriptural viewpoint is to say, God, you are the author your authority, your truth, and I'm not going to seek to align the world with my inner reality. I'm seeking to align my inner reality with what God has already said. And God said that he created them male and female. Now let's keep going. Verse Genesis 2.24. This is our second of the four scriptures I want to outline. And it says this, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. This is very important. Here, God creates marriage. He creates sexuality. The two become one flesh. That is the sexual act, the sexual union. And he says that the, the context for marriage is a man and a wife brought together by God. And the context for becoming one flesh is that, that marriage union. And so not only does he say, this is what marriage is, he also says, this is where I designed sex to be, within marriage. Now, some people say, Brian, that's great, that's the Old Testament. But really, Jesus never really talked about these things. Jesus never mentioned uh, gender, Jesus never mentioned these things. It's not true. Matthew chapter 19, we're fast forwarding to the New Testament, and this is what Jesus says, it's going to sound familiar to you. He says, haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator, that's God, made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. 
This is really important. Because there are things in the Old Testament that Jesus did away with in the New Covenant, right? We're not under uh, the Israelite law anymore. We don't have to uh, make sacrifices. We don't have to... Um, we, we don't have to um, abide by the cleanliness laws and the food laws. We can eat bacon, okay? But, but that's clearly outlined in Scripture. But what Jesus is not saying is, I'm doing away with the entire Old Testament. Jesus is here saying, in the beginning, God outlined male, female, sex, marriage, and I am affirming that. I'm saying, this is what God said. I'm continuing in this truth, And so Jesus is affirming what is written in Genesis. And then Paul affirms it again in Ephesians. He says in Ephesians 5, for this reason, again, this should sound familiar, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then he actually ups it. He said, this is a profound mystery. I'm talking about Christ and the church. So Paul, he actually takes it and levels it up. He says, yes, I affirm what the scriptures say. I affirm what Jesus said, and actually I'm revealing to you that marriage is actually a picture of Christ in the church. And this is very important for us to know, because when we think about God and the message towards the LGBTQ community, sometimes we can think God's just grumpy at them, right? Like, oh, God just doesn't want them to have any fun. No, marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. Jesus, a picture of the husband. He self-sacrificially serves and lays down his wife for the flourishing of his bride. The, the bride, a picture of the church, dedication, devotion, love, respect, honor for her husband. And so Jesus is saying, yes, your marriage is important. And it's important because it's actually a picture of something even greater, an even greater reality. And then Paul, I don't have it on the screen, but in 1 Corinthians 6, he continues to talk about the importance of the fact that sexuality should be confined to marriage because he says if you do it outside of marriage, you're harming your own body and and you're becoming one with something that you shouldn't become one with. Now, we've talked about this idea. We've talked about the fact that Scripture has a clear, consistent message about marriage, gender, and sexuality. This is the third thing, and this is very important. Oh, so I I should say this, that, that action outside of that design, is sin. That's what the Bible says. The action outside of this design, this clear, consistent message, is sin. Now, this has been heavy, but this is beginning to to walk into good news. And so this is the third point that we need to realize, is this, that Jesus doesn't start with renovation. He starts with redemption. Very, very important. Because sometimes when we see someone who is caught up in any lifestyle that is outside of biblical lifestyle, our natural thing is we got to get them to stop doing the action. We got to get them to stop vaping. We got to get them to stop smoking cigarettes. You know, we got to get them to stop going out into the bars or we got to get them to, we we see uh, this group of people and they're living in the LGBTQ lifestyle. We got to get them to stop. Jesus doesn't start with renovation. Jesus renovates. You guys, you guys who've been walking with the Lord know that, right? Like Jesus is working in your life, but he starts with redemption. It's like if I were handy and actually were, 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 was good at fixing up houses, I'm not, 
never going to flip houses. But if I was, I wouldn't see a house that's broken down and just walk in and start tearing out cabinets and putting up drywall. Because the owner of the house would be like, what are you doing? First, you have to purchase the house, and then you can start with renovation. Jesus has to redeem us. He has to purchase us. He has to save us. And when he saves us, then he redeems us. Then he, re- then he begins that, that process of renovating our lives and process of changing our lives. If we are preaching to people, hey, like, you need to stop being gay. You need to stop uh, pursuing that sinful lifestyle, and they don't have Jesus that's not going to help them in eternity. So the reality is we need to invite them to Christ. We need to invite them into the life-changing message of Christ. And guess what? Christ will redeem them and Christ will renovate them. He will give them a new heart. He will give them a new mind. He will give them a desire to serve and follow him. So the question is, specifically for the LGBTQ community, what does that look like? Well, it looks like all of us. This is what it says in 1 Corinthians 6. It says, such were some of you. And Paul gives this whole list of sin. And then he said, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. That's what happened with all of us when we got saved. If you're not saved, that's what you need. You need to be redeemed by Jesus. You need to be renovated by Jesus. And and Paul says, when Jesus enters your life, He's going to change you. He's going to rescue you. He's going to, he's going to start to change your mind, change your desires, change your heart toward things. And for those who are in the LGBT community, when they come to Jesus, this will happen just as much to them as it does to anyone else. Now, here's the key. There are times when that actually looks like someone who experienced a, a desire towards same-sex attraction, and God actually changes that desire. And, and they find a spouse. They get married. They have a family. There's an author, Jackie Hill Perry, and that was her experience. She grew up, she was a lesbian, she met Jesus, and she uh, ha- has a husband, she has four kids now. And she would say, I still struggle with lesbian attraction, but, but I'm committed to my marriage. I love my husband, and, 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 and we're super happy together. There are also times, and this is very difficult, there are times when someone who is in that community will come to Jesus and they will still experience that attraction and sometimes even for their life. And so they have to put that desire to death daily. And now we all have to put the desires to death daily that are apart from Christ, but it is extremely difficult for, 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 that, for that group for sure. That there, there's a lot of, of prayer and a lot of compassion and a lot of uh, encouragement that they need. But, but I do love this promise because I do believe that there are some people even in this room watching online, watching in the comments, maybe that's you. And you have had to say, I'm completely laying down my life and laying down what I want for Christ. This is a beautiful promise from Isaiah. It says this, this is what the Lord says. He says, I will bless those eunuchs who keep my Sabbath. This is just shorthand for those who, who don't have an active sexuality and who keep my Sabbath days holy, who choose to do what pleases me and to commit their lives to me. He says, I will give them within the walls of my house a memorial and a name far greater 
than sons and daughters could give. For the name that I give them is an everlasting one. It will never disappear. Now that's an incredible promise. At the time Isaiah wrote that, you can leave it up for a second. At the time Isaiah wrote that, the most important thing about sex and sexuality for that culture was having children. Because children were their legacy. Children were their offspring. If you didn't have sex, you didn't have kids, you did not have a name that carried on. Okay? And so God saying, I'm going to give you a name greater than sons and daughters can give. God is saying, I'm going to honor you. I'm going to value you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to give you a legacy even greater than children. For us in our culture, I wouldn't say children. We don't view children as, as the greatest legacy. They are, but th- that we, we, we don't view them that way. But we view sex for other things, for affirmation, for, um, for, for feeling good about ourselves or for expressing ourselves. And so perhaps even to our culture, God would say, look, I'm going to love you. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to give you an intimacy beyond anything that you could experience anywhere else. And so I think this is a beautiful, beautiful promise, especially for those who are single, for those who have said, you know what, that this is something that I'm going to give up for the sake of Christ. Very difficult, but it's a powerful thing. Okay, we're going to close with this. And this is the fourth thing. This is practical. How can we personally, as a church, move forward in serving the LGBTQ community? And it's this, that the church must be a place of shelter, love, and truth. Now, I want to read from a book called The War of Loves. This is by an author named David Bennett. David Bennett uh, was a gay activist. He was gay, and and he was promoting rights and promoting uh, the agenda of the LGBTQ community. He got saved in a gay bar, and his life was radically changed. So much so that he was on fire for the Lord. He was committed to Christ. He was committed to to serving Christ in every way. And he writes about a time where he invited friends to a men's conference. This is a very powerful story. He says, we were encouraged to invite friends, and I brought two gay friends from university. Both of them sat with me. Their disgust apparent at this heteronormative nightmare they'd been sucked into. It was incredible that they even agreed to come. But I hope that, like me, they discover the message of the grace of Christ. Then he talks about later in the worship service. And he said, My heart dropped as the pastor transitioned out of worship and made a passing joke related to homosexuality. One strike was all my friends could take. They signaled that they were leaving ashamed and upset. And I followed them out. And as we made our way to the car, the Lord whispered to me, David, I'm sorry. Remember how much grace I've had for you. Please have grace for the church, my broken bride. The drive home was silent and awkward. I was embarrassed and angry with my church. How could people who claim to know Christ be so insensitive and miss the entire goal of the Christian life, which was to be like Jesus? Instead of offering grace and showing people like me and my friends a vision for what it meant to follow Jesus, a bunch of Christians had gathered to make jokes at the expense of people like us. I wondered how many men in that room struggled with their sexual orientation. I wonder how many of them had family members, close friends, neighbors, or coworkers who were somehow barred from the heteronormative dream that church often elevated. It seems so disconnected, so uncaring. And we have to be cautious of this. 
This is a heavy passage. And I, I wanted to read that at length because I wanted us to understand that, yes, it is important to stand on truth. But in standing on truth, we can be incredibly cruel and incredibly unkind. And we're not standing on truth anymore. We're just being mean. We can even just not be thinking about things and make jokes that we, we think are funny, but, but, but they are harmful to people. And that's even why, I mean, we're, we're going a, a couple minutes over tonight, but that's why it's important for us to take the time to unpack this. Because these are not just theological issues. They are theological issues, but they're people. And they're people that we know. They're some of our kids. They're some of our friends. They're some of our coworkers. And, and yes, we do believe what the Bible says. We stand on the truth of the word, but we love people. We walk with people, and we must never lose sight of the fact that this is not just a theological issue. This is a human issue as well. And so the church must be a place of truth and love. And I want to talk quickly about truth. In 2 Peter 2.11, he writes, Dear friends, I urge you to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Jesus in John 8 says this, You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And so as a church, we are always going to be committed to teaching God's word, even the parts that are not popular in culture, even the parts that make us sometimes feel a little uncomfortable. And the reason is because it's not loving to deny the truth to someone. And our culture says you love someone by wholeheartedly accepting them, no matter what they want. And we need to realize that it is not loving to affirm a lie. It's not. Having said that, we are also called to love people. We're called to serve even our enemies, even people that disagree with us. And this is what it says in 1 Peter 4, 9. It says this, the end of all things is at hand. Be self-control and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And he says this, above all, love one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. What is hospitality? Hospitality is welcoming people, especially followers of Jesus, into our lives. Welcoming them into our community groups. Welcoming them into our homes. Welcoming them to our dinner tables or to coffee shops. We as a church need to practice hospitality. Now, think about what I told you earlier. There are going to be those in the LGBTQ community that come to Christ and they are going to remain single. We as a church are called to surround them. We're called to love them. We're called to serve them. We're called to walk with them. The same as anyone else. We bear each other's burdens. We serve each other. We love each other. We take care of each other. We're called to be a loving community. And so I'm challenging us as the church. I'm challenging us as Calvary Chapel, as this Melbourne campus, that we would be a loving community, that we would never walk away from truth, but we would embrace Christ, who was full of truth and full of grace, who loved everyone, who served everyone, and who took care of everyone. Let's pray. God, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for your word, which there are really, really beautiful portions 
And there are really challenging portions, and even the challenging portions are beautiful. Thank you for tonight for helping us to be more conformed to your image. God, I believe that there were people who weren't confident on where they stood, and now they are confident based on your word. I believe there are people who are very judgmental, and you've called us to grace. And I believe there are people who uh, are struggling with their sexuality. And tonight, you have brought comfort and direction through your word. God, I pray that for those in here who don't know you, who have walked away from you, that they tonight would say yes to you. We've learned about your wrath, but we know that you prefer mercy, that you invite us towards mercy because of the cross, that you died on the cross for our sins to come to us, to save us, to rescue us, to transform us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.